And I just want to stop and pray as we go into this, because I feel a real weight on this, uh, on behalf of you. Because I have a sense, and I really think it's from the Lord, that some of you are wrestling with vision, and when you even hear that we're going to be talking about vision, you are so sensitive to that that you don't even want to talk about it. And this is what we're talking about. When I talk about get you getting vision for your life, I'm not saying we're going to have a whiteboard session and we're going to come out of that with a nine-step plan for you to improve yourself, okay? Someone will always be willing to give you those steps. What I'm talking about is vision that what you are stuck in right now is not what you have to be stuck in for the rest of your life. That there can be more to life than you are experiencing. And part of getting there is even picturing that life can be different than what you know. I had somebody challenge me about a year ago and they said, you're afraid you're going to be like this for the rest of your life. And that was true. And I began to get a vision that things could be possibly different. Okay? So that's when I talk about vision, uh, that's what we're talking about. This idea that I could move beyond where I am stuck right now. So let's pray for just a second. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to dream and to think that maybe you have more for us than how we live right now. That what we're struggling with right now is not a forever struggle. In Jesus' name, amen. Now to start out, let me just tell you, this is a, a rambling introduction to this series, okay? It's going to be a little bit, a lot of different places. It'll make more sense as we go along, and I may or may not have more material than we can cover, but that's okay. We have sermon notes here, um, but again, please know that I have several off-ramps written within the notes that we can bail out at any given point, and uh, so if we're halfway through it and time's running out, don't worry, we're okay. Uh, I want to prepare you for something and be very vulnerable here. I ran across something really disturbing this week, and of course, my first inclination was to disturb you with it as well. Um, uh, dig, if you will, a picture. Check this next picture out. 1985. Alex P. Keaton's sweater and tie combo. Okay, can you imagine? This is me back in the day. Some of you still haven't figured that out. You're rectifying those two facts, okay? This was me in 1985. I was, uh, this is my senior year of high school, and I was a one of 38 kids in my class. Most of us went K through 12 together. Only a couple of kids came or left. Nobody ever went anywhere. Nobody ever came. And we all went in the same building. That wasn't a one-room school. Don't think Laura Ingalls. But it was one building, K through 12. And as you made it through, you, you worked your way up. And most of our parents were farmers, ranchers, or worked for farmers or ranchers, or were involved in the school, or, or some business that served agribusiness. I only say that to say it explains why the guidance counselor, when you would get to high school and talk about what you were going to do, would generally give you a couple of different options. You wanna be a farmer? You wanna be a rancher? Do you wanna work in a business that supports farming and ranching, or do you want to be a school teacher? all of them honorable professions, and I don't want to take anything about it. My point was, you were not given many options, because we just didn't know those things existed. And if you wanted to do anything else other than those things, you had to bring that picture to the table by yourself. Nobody was going to tell you about that. I think in 38 kids, there were maybe nine that went into uh, uh, education to be school teachers. 
which is, again, a super honorable profession, and that might have been exactly what the Lord had for them, but it was like you were given, you pick anything you want, one, two, or three. I had a different idea in my head, somewhere along the line, imagine, that uh, I would be involved in ministry, but if I didn't have that picture on my own, I surely wouldn't be here. If you do not have a picture of your future, one will be provided for you. But it may not be the one that is yours. I knew I wanted to do ministry, but there was no path for that. I had to find my own. My friend John, whose dad was a dentist, he had a little bit of an idea of how to be a dentist. He went on to be a dentist, but for the most part, everybody else kind of stuck to the script that was written for them, with just very few exceptions. And I show you that picture only to say that if that guy could not picture this at 15 or 16, if I didn't have parents that encouraged me, if I didn't have a pastor that took two or three days off to drive me to a Bible college to check it out, if I didn't have other people speaking into that vision, that would have never happened. Another image would have been provided for me. When we can't picture a different future, one is provided for us. Now, you may look back and go, yeah, I wasn't given very many options either. Like, I kind of, I don't know how I ended up here. And the Lord can deal with any hand he has dealt. The game is not over. But in the heart of God, there is a plan for people, for individuals, and for groups. He has a picture, and if we can get a glimpse of that picture, it changes our future. This idea of asking God for a picture that we may not imagine on our own is based on two big ideas that we're going to talk about during the course of this series, okay? The first big idea is this. Growing in Jesus requires an element of faith that goes beyond apologetics to exercise. You're like, that's a very complex sentence. It's not the most complex of this morning, but let me read it again. Growing in Jesus requires an element of faith that goes beyond apologetics to exercise. How many of you are familiar with the, with the uh, word apologetics? You know what I'm talking about? Some of like, I'm issuing apologetics all day long. No, no, that's not what I'm talking about. It's not about you apologizing. Apologetics is a reasoned defense of the faith. It's a logical presentation of who Jesus is and why we believe what we believe. Many of you have read the book, um, The Case for Christ, or saw the movie by Lee Strobel. His co-writer, Mark Middleberg, is a good friend of ours, Mark and, and uh, Heidi, and he is one of the foremost apologetics teachers in the nation. He travels and presents these ideas of why it is logical and right and why it is trustworthy to believe in Jesus. I love apologetics, and a lot of people come to Jesus through the ministry of apologetics, but Jesus is not just looking for you to concede that he is who he said he is. I mean, we all surrender to him on that term. We go, all right, you are who you said you are. But he's looking for an element of faith that goes beyond apologetics to exercise a flow of interaction between your heart and his that goes beyond facts and also involves your emotions and your will. And that is not just because he demands to be loved. It's actually for your own protection. Because there are coming days in your life, if you have not realized them now, when facts will not matter or they're not enough. Becky, while you were laying there in the ER, facts about the reliability of the Dead Sea Scrolls would have done nothing for your heart. Like, thanks for the facts, but I need a little more here. When you're laying on the table and they're ready to hook up the chemo, facts are not enough. 
Apologetics are a gateway to know the Lord, but the gate swings on the hinges of encountering Jesus. So in this series, we're going to talk about you a little bit, and we're going to talk about how you can have faith to encounter God, and that that gate can turn, and you can have a picture that you did not have before. It is a dreadful thing to not be able to see a way forward. And that's not the life that God had for you. It's not the future that he has for you. So that's the first big idea. Growing in Jesus requires an element of faith that goes beyond apologetics to exercise of that faith. The second big idea really is for all of us here at the bridge. It is big idea number two, building a congregation. What we're doing here, some of you wandered in this morning, what are we doing here? We are just getting started. This is not the end result, okay? you, You think it's hokey now. You should have come earlier, all right? We're getting there. It's happening. But this is not the end all. Building a congregation requires an element of faith that sees what others cannot be so that we could be what we would not be if we didn't see it. It's complicated. But it's the ability to see something so we can become it. And if we can't see it, we just never become it. Most of us see and determine things in retrospect. We look back and we decide. Some of us see in circumspect. We look around and we decide. But seeing through the way that God sees us is a way of seeing forward and seeing what he sees. Now I said two weeks ago, we're in a series of firsts. Young church, everything you do, you do the first time. What's the first time when you, when you do baby dedications? What's the first time when you do this? What's, you know, and, and there's a beauty in that because nobody at the bridge ever says, whoa, we didn't used to do it that way. Well, it's because we didn't used to do it at all. So everything's first, okay? And that's fun and that's exciting, but I promise you, we are a half step away from, that's not how we used to do it, about the dumbest things. One day, we will graduate to a proper church offering plate. One day. And somebody will go, I missed the orange bucket. It's only funny because it's true. People get stuck in the way things have been and they don't think enough about the way things... I mean, it's potentially frightening to think we get that attached to that bucket. But it's true. As individuals or as a church family, in order to have faith for what we're called for, we need to be able to picture things forward the way God sees them. Even the future, especially the future. Because failing to picture a preferred future that God sees means we will settle for one that somebody hands to us. And nobody pictures the future like Jesus. Nobody looks at the ingredients in you and looks forward and sees anything like the Lord does. No one pictures the future of the bridge like that man with his eyes on fire who sits on the throne. He sees stuff that, like, he could say, I could tell you, but you're not going to believe it. So I'll tell you little bits and pieces. Maybe if I let you believe for dancers, one day you'll believe for more. Romans 4 talks about God in this way. He says he gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. God is in create mode. That is not in Pinterest mode. That is not taking a, you know, a uh, paper towel tube and fastening it into a Christmas tree. He's not making something out of something. He's making something out of absolutely nothing. How does a little prayer group that had the audacity to start two weeks before a pandemic and then go to Zoom for a year end up developing and growing into a body of sorts? 
because he makes something out of nothing. Now that idea challenges some of you because you are less acquainted with the creator than you are with the creation. And that doesn't happen in the creation. It doesn't happen in the physical world. God puts a limit on creation so that we can exist and we can navigate it, but the creator is not held captive to the limits that he puts on the creation. 1788, Frenchman Antoine Lavoisier, and yes, I did Google how to pronounce it. 1788, he comes up with this idea called the law of the conservation of mass. What this says is, during any physical or chemical change, the total mass of the products remain equal to the total mass of the reactants. What does that mean? You can't create anything out of nothing, and you can't make anything go away. We're like, yeah, I can. I can burn something down. When you burn it down, the total weight of the gases that are let off and the carbons and all of that equal whatever you burn down. You can't create anything, and you can't make anything go away. You can't turn something into nothing, and you can't turn nothing into something. It's why magic grabs our attention. We see a magic act, you know, the guy's going to pull a rabbit out of his hat, and you know that he can't do that, and he does it. We're like, he did it, you know. We're intrigued by that, because we know it. We know we're being tricked, because you really can't do that. God made up that rule, but God is not limited to that rule. So we live in the shadow of this law of conservation of mass, yet in the life of believer, there's another phrase for what God can do with nothing, and it's really short. It's not as long or complicated as the conservation of mass. It's just this one little phrase we find in the Bible that says, but God. But God, we find it over and over again where he describes these insanely dark situations and then, but God, and things change. Things were terrible, but God. Acts 3, 15, he's preaching to them and he says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Acts 7, 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt but God was with him. There are these but God moments all through the book of Psalms where they describe these terrible situations, but God, and suddenly the law of conservation of mass does not apply anymore. He does something out of a situation where it feels like there's nothing there. The creator of the universe retains the right to pull a rabbit out of his hat and to pull the hat out of thin air and to make something out of nothing. From prehistoric times, it has always been but God. John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things that were made were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. In just a couple of short verses here, he tells us very clearly, Jesus has always existed alongside of God. That is theology 101, all right? Jesus was not created at Christmas. Jesus is always, a, there's only a couple of groups with, that would even associate with, with uh, the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that would say that Jesus is a created being. Jehovah's Witness, uh, they believe Jesus was a created being. Mormons believe Jesus was a created being. In fact, Mormons believe God was a man, which is very complicated. Moonies 
Remember Moonies? Moonies believed Jesus was a created being. That's about the only slice of, of any sort of faith that would say that anything other than Jesus pre, was preexistent with God. It also tells us that through him, through the word, everything on the earth, the atmosphere, beyond the atmosphere, to the ever-expanding edges of the universe is created and is being created out of nothing from him. The more scientists learn about the cosmos, the more they go, we don't know anything. It's expanding. How? We don't know what's out there. We don't know that too. Because he's creating to this day. The world would not exist and we would not know him but God. So how do those who love God somehow live in anticipation of a future, of a picture that we don't see? How do we picture this? How do we not get stuck pursuing a lesser picture? If a miracle is on his heart for your life, how do you, how do you get a vision for that? If development as a church body, and by development I, I mean just beginning to meet our neighbors in a, in a distinct and, and a significant way and introducing them to Jesus and seeing more of an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, if all of that's going to come to pass, how do we get a picture of that? How do we start asking, Lord, what is your dream for me? Or am I stuck like this? When you start asking God, what is your dream for us? Let me tell you what, his heart jumps. He's like, oh, I'm happy to meet their needs, but now they're talking my language. Now they're asking me what I think. Because he knows when we catch a vision like that, whether it's for ourselves or for our church body, it changes us. With vision, we are different people than we are without vision. Without vision, we are miserable at best. Sometimes we're beyond miserable. We're actually a real pain to other people. Proverbs 29, 18 talks about people. And it says, where there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint. Some versions say the people perish. It's worse than that. They actually throw off the bonds of restraint when they don't have vision. That's what happens when you can't see a way forward. You don't maintain zero. You actually digress. But those who have vision are completely different. Psalm 110.3 says, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. Or when they can catch an idea, God, of what you're doing, they'll jump on that bandwagon in a heartbeat. If you can tap on into the picture that God has for your family or for you or for this church, all of a sudden you go, Oh, I would die for that dream. People will generally die for dreams. They won't die for reality. That's why we need God's dream. Because one, if we don't have it, we'll cast off all restraint. Two, if we do have it, we will volunteer freely. Without getting into specifics right now, the dream of God is that you would partner with him for his purposes on the earth. He loves you, he cares for you, and he has a picture in his mind of what he sees you doing, and that picture includes partnering with him. He wants you in the family business of redemption. There's this passage in 1 Corinthians where we catch Paul teaching, and he's kind of dreaming a little bit, prophetically. Here's what he says about God's heart for the Corinthian church, but really for our church as well. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. He will keep you strong to the end, so you will be free from all blame on the day when our Lord Jesus Christ returns. 
God will do this for he is faithful to do what he says and he has invited you into partnership with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is inviting you in to participate with him to bring about his purposes in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of your church. He's not saying, watch me. He's saying, let's go. Let's go. If we want to be prophetic people and intercessors, then how do we become partners with God? Because short of partnership, we are all just as surprised as everybody else when something happens. We can partner with him to find his vision through a thing he describes as faith. We can't even believe that he can pull a rabbit out of a hat if we don't have the gift of faith within us. Why? Because I've watched musicians pull rabbits out of hats before. I don't trust them. I mean, none of you as an adult watched a magician pull a rabbit out of a hat and thought, he really did it. You know it's a trick, right? So inherently, you're letting yourself being fooled by this guy, but you wouldn't trust him. You know he's pulling the wool over your eyes. Some of you have that kind of relationship with God. He's done things you can't explain, but you still don't trust him. Because you think somehow there's a trick or a catch. He's saying, no, 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 no. I create things out of nothing. And you've got to buy into that kind of God if you're ever going to partner with him. And some of you struggle with believing for more of your life because you think it's all up to you. You're like, I got a Scrabble board and 14 letters. I can't win. He's like, I create letters. I actually create things out of nothing so that your life can be different. I have seen things happen just within our own family life in the way of provision and miracles that I could tell stories forever. And he's created opportunity and things out of nothing. But every time it's happened, it has been met with a surge of faith on our end. The faith did not cause it, but the faith had risen up to meet it. Hebrews 11, 1 through 3 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It's like we have faith, and he really does pull that rabbit out of an empty hat. He really does what we know cannot be done and create something out of nothing. In other words, if you want to see what God is about to do, you've got to look beyond the apparent or the obvious, and you've got to trust in the invisible hand of God to do what he said he would do. What is naturally apparent about you is not God's big dream for you. What is naturally apparent about this church is not God's big dream for the bridge. In both cases, he wants to make something more out of nothing. But when it happens, it will be because there's been an infusion of faith in our hearts to believe for it. Maybe we didn't see it coming fully, but we believed for it. The Apostle Paul writes this in context about writing about being of great courage. He says, in essence, that this is the result of us having courage in our lives. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, because of courage in our lives, we walk by faith and not by sight. So it's a brave thing, takes courage, but we can do it. If you want a picture of God's plan for your life or for the church, it's going to require courage and it will be by faith and not by sight. You will picture it in your heart before you see it with your eyes or hold it with your hands. 
2017, there was a Harvard study done on those that they describe as profoundly blind, those that have been entirely blind from prior to the age of three. So a small child becomes blind or someone's born blind and they probably never ever have any memory of seeing anything. And they realize that if they took a sighted person and blindfolded them and stood them on a street corner in New York City and told them, stand here for five minutes, that when it was over, they would ask that person to describe the situation and that person invariably would say, that was terrifying. Would you do it again? No. Would you do it for money? No. They said, I, was, I, I thought I was going to be hit at any moment. I did, it was chaos. It was deafening. It was, no, I would never do that again. But if you take a person who is profoundly blind and you stand them on the street corner for five minutes and you ask them about it, they'll say, what was your experience? And they'll tell you, the wind was blowing east to west. Some blocks away, there was an ambulance moving this direction. There was a man behind me, I could smell, was, was selling bagels. It must have been rush hour because there were people all around me. It is possible to see more if you're not counting on your eyes to do it. You can have a much more profound view of God's preferred future if you shut your eyes for a minute and ignore the obvious all around you and tune into what he's saying, what he's doing. The future is not first seen. The future is first believed. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 and 10. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who loved him. These things God has revealed to us through a mini-series on Netflix that you watch when your kids go to sleep. No, no, doesn't come through your eyes. It's through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. It is revealed to you in a way that you are not accustomed to. In other words, you can't see it, but he says, let me show this to you. God desires to reveal to you through his Spirit where he can take you as a son or as a daughter, as a mother, as a father, as a leader, as a church. He wants to give you a peek through faith to the secrets that he has planned, and then he wants to partner with you to make that happen. Some of you struggle with this idea that God has a plan for your life. I mean, you wouldn't say it out loud, but you look at the last three, five, 20 years, and you're like, this all seems rather haphazard. Like, was there really a plan here, God? Well, a couple of things. One, not everything that happened to you was God's plan. There were some things that happened to you that were not God's plan. Two, he's not going to waste a second of that. He's going to redeem all that. You may say, I cannot see it turning out for good. That's because you're using your eyes. Close your eyes and ask the Lord... What would you have in this situation? How can it possibly be turned around for good? I am looking back at a situation in our life, and I'm only saying, Lord, I cannot see it, so I have to close my eyes, and I have to tune in to what you're saying to me, and Lord, can you show me a way forward? He has more than a plan. He actually has a toolkit for you on how to see without your eyes. Hebrews 13, 21 
Paul is writing that God will equip you with everything good that you may do his will according to us which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be the glory forever and ever. He's like, it's okay, I can see a way forward. This turns out differently than you think it does. I could see from a vantage point that even if you opened your eyes, you couldn't see what I can see. So trust me on this. Trust my spirit speaking to you and go and do what I tell you to do. In this series, we're going to talk about what God has in his heart for you. We're also going to talk about what he has in his heart for your friends. One of the casualties of our era culturally and we cannot blame this all on the pandemic by any means. But one of the casualties of our culture, of this area, has been the value and pleasure of friendship. Long-term adult friendship, which was the norm for our parents and our grandparents, and which you would think would be easier to maintain now than at any other time in our life through the miracle of technology, has become a casualty. And many of us know little about it and have very little experience in it. Most would say, I have few friends. And they'd be right. A couple of statistics I ran across this week. 18% of Americans have no one outside of their home they would consider asking for help in any circumstances. I mean, just make this real. 18, almost one in five Americans have no one that they could call and say, Jerry, I have a refrigerator in my garage. I need to put it in the house. Will you come and help? One in five go, fridge staying in the garage. 47% of Americans, of adults, would say they have no more than three friends. Some of you are going, where do I get three? 47, almost half Americans, they got three. And if you asked them, when did you talk to them last, they'd have to think about that. This is maybe even the most horrifying. 27% of millennials said they have no friends at all. Almost one in three of an increasingly large segment of our population says, I have no friends. You're like, is that really true? If you believe it, it's true. I read somewhere, somebody said, you know Jesus was a miracle worker because he got to his 30s and still had 12 friends left. <laughs> like, that's like walking on water. As our encounters with friendship have decreased, so has our vision for friends. And so has our belief that God would have friends for us or that we would have an impact on them and they could flourish in the Lord. And many people even avoid friendships because they think, I can't afford to carry one more person and I can't imagine a friendship that would be anything other than a burden right now. Friendships were not meant to be a burden, they were meant to be a support. Everything about friendship should build us up. 1 Corinthians 15.33 tells us, bad company corrupts good character. The inverse has got to be true. Good companies got to build character in our lives. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10 talks about the idea that two are better than one, that the idea of being with people makes life easier. We are going to ask during this series to give uh, the Lord to give us vision for friendships 
with one another and outside of the bridge and so that we can have an impact on those lives and so they can build us up as well. It may not be obvious to anyone else to the, but to the Lord, but he is partnering with people like us to build relationships with other people that we encourage in the Lord and they encourage us. We're going to talk about the Lord's vision for us. We're going to talk about the Lord's vision for our friends. We're going to talk about the Lord's vision for the bridge and believing that this can be more. We're going to ask that he would give us eyes, that, because if we can see what he has planned, maybe we have faith for it, maybe we can partner with him then. Starting a congregation really means seeing what nobody else can see. It really does. I've worked with a lot of church planters over the years. Church planters and those that are drawn to them are almost, almost universally appear a little bit delusional. They just do. They see things that people don't see. Or they don't make it. Because to start from nothing, you're like, how could this work? But yet the Lord does it. In order to see things being created from nothing, we've got to develop a couple of skills and disciplines to partner with God that we're going to apply in these different areas as we go through this series. And these things involve the suspension of natural laws and the embracing of spiritual laws. It takes some level of depth. This is not like Sunday morning 101 Christianity. To believe for spiritual things takes spiritual depth. It takes zero spiritual depth to believe in gravity. Gravity just works. If you don't believe it, I mean, a couple exercises that I can show you. They hurt, but they work. Gravity works. Everybody believes in gravity, but it took a long time for anybody to believe they could fly, and before they could believe that, they had to see it. Let's say you want to picture these things that God is going to show us. What are key ingredients? How do you picture what, how do you, like, how do you even envision the rabbit that comes out? I can't even see the hat. A couple of key ingredients. One is what I call holy imagination. Imagination is a powerful thing because it creates the world that we respond to. Doesn't necessarily create physical things, but it creates the world that we respond to. What we imagine dictates how we respond. And an imagine, imagination left to itself can actually lead very dark places, and you find yourself dealing with darkness that wasn't there before you imagined it. Some of you imagined a monster under your bed when you were a kid, and that dictated your behavior. Like, am I going to get out of bed? No, I'll lose a limb. So you stayed in bed. Your imagination dictated your behavior. You responded to it as if it were reality. Late 90s, I had a group of 50 or 60 teenagers with me on a missions trip to Boston. And we went and stayed at this old building in um, kind of downtown Boston, this church. And I'm not saying that the pastor lied when he described the building, but he was really creative because he used words like safe and clean. And when we got there, this building was neither of those things. It was four stories tall. They owned the whole building. And, you know, good youth pastor mode, we're going to put the girls on this floor, boys on this floor, maybe a floor between them with rabid dogs. I don't know. We got into this building. I walked through it with the parents that I had with me. The parents were coming to me and going, no, boys and girls in one place. We, we cannot, like, we got to be in one spot. So there was a gym on the fourth floor, and we put the, the boys on one side, the girls on the other side, all the sponsors slept in the middle, like, you know, the great divide. And uh, 
The second night, my sponsors came to me and said, uh, late last night we saw a mouse running. Now, nothing about this building would lend you to believe that it was not mice infested. Okay, you look at it, you would go, yeah, I got, but that had not entered our mind until that point. So like a good youth pastor, I remember thinking, how can we manipulate this for a good laugh? Now, I didn't think about taking care of the mouse. I thought, how can you know, we have fun with this? So I, I told them, okay, tonight, as everybody's going to bed, come and tell me about a mouse and say it just loud enough that if you hear it. So we all climb into our blanket, you know, little sleeping bags, and one of my sponsors comes to me and goes, hey, we just saw a mouse. And he says it just loud enough that a few kids hear it. Well, of course, it takes like four nanoseconds to that spread through the whole mouse, mouse. So I get up with, with a flashlight and with a broom that I had right next to me. Nobody asks any questions. Why is he sleeping with a broom? You know, they're just afraid of a mouse. And I'm looking for this mouse. And the kids are like, what's wrong? Nothing, nothing. And I'm just jumping over them trying to look for a mouse that I don't even see. Very quickly, it goes from, it's a mouse, it's a mouse, to, it's a rat. It's, I see it, I see it. And the, like I had a kid station that kept the lights off. And the roar was deafening as these 50 kids are screaming about a rat that, to my knowledge, doesn't even exist. They could see a little bit through the moonlight, and I chased this imaginary rat under a table. They're screaming about it. And earlier that day at a thrift store, I had bought a little fox coat that I had tucked into that table. I come rolling out underneath the table, clutching it against my neck, yelling, it's got me, it's got me, it's got me! And the roof comes off this place. They are screaming, they're sure, they are responding as one would were your youth pastor attacked by a Boston rat. Okay? Why? Because their imagination dictated their response. Was it real? Didn't matter. They're still screaming. Does not matter if it's real. You, the things you imagine dictate your responses. Doesn't matter if they're real. Pablo Picasso said, everything you imagine is real. What that means is what you imagine dictates your responses. And sometimes that leads you to a dark place. Genesis 6-5, leading up here to the Tower of Babel. says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And that every intention of his thoughts, of his heart, was only evil continually. Older translations say, every imagination of the man's heart. Man imagined that he could build a tower and imagined if he did, he would become God. And that imagination that they acted on was their downfall. Imagination is powerful and it can be the end of you. Or it can be the beginning. The main character in most people's daydreams is themselves. What they mostly imagine involves themselves. Natural imagination leads itself to thinking about yourself. Holy imagination leads you to think about others and what, that, what could be. Just one more example here. In Isaiah 38, Hezekiah is a king, and uh, he's not a good king at this point, and he receives a prophetic word from Isaiah uh, and short version of the prophetic word is you're going to die. That's, I mean, it was a little more flowery than that, but the point was you're going to die. Hezekiah pleads with God, pleads with Isaiah. Isaiah goes and prays, and he gets a reprieve. He gets like 15 years. Some people, 15 years is not that long. If you were going to die, 15 years is like a better deal than you had five minutes ago. 
okay? So he gets a reprieve from the Lord. All that's super important. Going into chapter 39, which is only eight verses long. Guy gets a 15-year reprieve. He only lives eight more verses. Or he only continues in the story eight more verses. Because the second prophecy that comes from Isaiah is this. Bad times are coming, and your sons will be carried off to Babylon as eunuchs. Hezekiah, now think about this. He has prayed already and seen the Lord turn his heart. He's, the Lord's told him, you're going to die, and he's prayed, and he's gotten a 15-year reprieve. You would think that coming out of this, that maybe a prayer meeting would be in order. But hearing that that's going to happen, but it'll happen to his sons, this is Hezekiah's response. The word of the Lord you have spoken to me is good, for he thought there will be peace and security in my days. His imagination was only for himself. He couldn't think, Lord, you gave me 15 years. Can you give me years for my sons? Can, can I dream a little bigger than just what I want here? Who on earth would, would, upon hearing your children will be led into captivity, would have the audacity to say, Ooh, skip the generation. Hallelujah. Only somebody that only thought of themselves. Natural imagination is always about us. Holy imagination thinks beyond yourself. What if the Lord could unleash your imagination to think of the good that God could do in your lifetime and beyond through you? You're never going to outrun him, but you will raise your water level of faith by dreaming in that direction. Holy imagination dreams for other people. One more thing imagination does. You know, uh, if you've been under a rock, um, Elon Musk finally got the keys to Twitter this year. $44 billion later, he gets the keys to Twitter. And everybody is clamoring. What does everybody want from Twitter? An edit button. Okay, everybody wants to edit what they said. Can I please just hit Twitter? Can I go back and edit? And that would be great. You know what would be better than changing what you've said? Changing what you say or changing what you think. I read this week, imagination can edit the way you think. With holy imagination, you can begin to rewire even the way you think and you begin to be more outward focused. You're like, oh, I'm dreaming about people I didn't even like before. Yeah, that's a holy imagination. Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If we want a picture of where the Lord is going to take us, we need to adopt that hunger for holy imagination that thinks beyond our life. Because if your imagination is only for you, you have already begun the downward spiral. We have a, a phrase in our house, when something is inevitable, we say it is circling the drain. If you are only imagining what the future is in relation to what it means for you, you're already circling the drain. You're, already, you're like, there's no hope there. Your vision's gotta be bigger than that. I wanna ask if Jenna would come and just jump on a guitar real, real quick. Uh, we're going to just roll the rest of this into next week because we are going to talk about getting vision for you and believing that your life could be different than it is now. Some of you live in a very real, present fear 
that this is it. And I've been there, I understand. And it sucks the life out of you. A Christian without hope is swimming with their hands and feet tied. And if they're lucky, they can stay above the surface, but it's not likely. Why don't you just stand with me for a moment? I want you to close your eyes for just a second and ask for a moment ask the Lord what is your preferred future for me maybe even make it simpler and ask him is there a preferred future for me is there more Lord I ask for these dear ones that you have gathered is this it? Because I don't believe it. I believe that you have a purpose and a destiny and it involves fruitfulness and it involves flourishing. It involves friendships. It involves a church body that is a blessing to their community and their city. It involves partnering with Jesus for the purposes of God on the earth and in our lives. But before we can even dream about that, Lord, we need to hear from you that this is not it. When I said the word stuck, for some of you that was like an arrow that pierced your heart because you've, you felt that for real. We've all felt it at some point, but you felt stuck. I'm here to tell you, stuck is not your destiny. And we want to pray for you for just a minute in our closing moments. If you have felt stuck, just let me see your hand right now. We want to pray for you. This is not over here, Mana. Anybody else? Over here is a couple right here. You feel stuck. Let me see your hand. Raise it up. We want to pray for you right now. If you're near some of those, a couple over here, a couple over here, just gather around them as Jenna's going to lead us for a couple of moments of prayer, but we want to pray that God would give vision. Some of you did not have enough faith to admit you're stuck, for real. You're stuck, stuck. Father, I pray you would meet them right where they are.